but uh, grateful uh, to have Pastor Adam with us today after having some time after the birth of, of Hallie. Uh, been always working behind the scenes and, and making sure that uh, we're all set to go on Sunday mornings in particular, and there have been a lot of other things, and just all the preparations for Christmas. It feels often like it's an it's a incredible sprint towards Christmas, doesn't it? And in two weeks' time, we'll already be looking at Christmas in the rearview mirror. And I want to invite you uh, and encourage you, in fact, to, to just embrace the slower pace that I think these next few uh, weeks are going to bring. Um, <clears throat> be very different than uh, most usual Christmases, but there is something I think that is so profound at the opportunity before us, and I'll say a little bit more about that in a bit. Um, but we are on to this third Sunday of Advent already, and Advent is this season of waiting and longing and expecting. And it takes us back to a time before Jesus as the people of Israel are waiting for their Messiah to come and rescue them. They were expecting, of course, a mighty conqueror, and instead, he came as a helpless baby in a manger. And today, we're still waiting for Jesus to come again, and we know the pain and the brokenness of our world all too well, and we long for things to be made right. We are a people who, as the Apostle Paul wrote uh, in, the Colossians, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, who set our minds on things above not on earthly things. And so we are in these days setting our minds on the themes of peace and hope and joy and love, things above. Because there is this harsh reality to all of what we're facing right now. The massive disruption caused by the coronavirus, the restrictions that we're now living under, and the sadness that we all feel at the loss of so many of the things that we cherish. Um, most notably, of course, among all of that is just relationships and the loss of being able to be together or to hug one another and to spend time together. And in the midst of all of this, I'm supposed to talk about joy. I think we can all maybe identify with this. Maybe this is a true expression of us. We, we want to hold out the sign and say, yes, there is joy and yet, uh, the expression on the kids tell it all. I- I've seen another similar picture where the J has kind of fallen off and it just says, oi, which, which I think is just short for the, like, ove, which is this Yiddish saying of, you know, oh, whoa. And, uh, things are, uh, incredibly bad and bleak right now. And so it's true. There is no joy in Mudville. There's no joy in Edmonton. There's maybe no joy in, California or Ohio or Florida. There's no joy in Nigeria or Germany or Nicaragua or Costa Rica or Pakistan or, or Thailand or India or for wherever you may be joining us this morning. We all are impacted by this global pandemic. And we're facing a Christmas unlike anything we have ever experienced in our lifetime, which I think is perfect. Now, before you think I've totally lost my mind, let me explain that. See, I think it's the perfect environment for us to really embrace the true meaning of Christmas. Perhaps we can identify more with the Israelites who were waiting and longing for their Messiah. Perhaps we can appreciate more deeply the gifts of peace and hope and joy and love. Perhaps we can identify with Mary and Joseph 
who were mandated by the government to go to Bethlehem to take for the census that was being taken. Uh, to make this journey while nine months pregnant. Couldn't have been worse timing. And they're alone, no help from family, and there's no room at the inn. And Mary gives birth without the support of family and friends around. Only Joseph is with her. And so together they're isolated and alone. No one to call, no pictures to post on Facebook or Instagram. And as if that wasn't bad enough, after the birth of Jesus, they then fled to Egypt because of the threat of Herod, who because of his insecurity ordered that all the babies under two years old would be, would, should be killed because of um, the threat to his kingship when he heard about this king that was born. So there they are in Egypt, isolated and alone, until, of course, they could eventually return safely home. So it seems fitting. The shepherds were also isolated and alone. They're out looking after their flocks in the fields. They were used to being kept in the dark. Uh, they were usually the last ones to hear any news. They, they lived outdoors. They slept under the stars. There's just not much excitement in their lives. Until one night, an angel appears and freaks them out. And the angel says to the lowly shepherds, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born to you who is the Messiah, the Lord. And the shepherds, just like every Jewish person, were longing for good news. Their longing made the news that much better and filled their hearts with joy. A Savior was finally born, the Messiah, the one for whom they had waited for so long. Hope had been fulfilled. And so the shepherds, they go to Bethlehem. They go to the, to, to the stable so that they could see this king that had been born. And they go and off after seeing this to, to tell everyone about it. They share and spread the good news. And Luke records then that they went off glorifying and praising God. Because joy filled their hearts. And when we think of our Savior born in a stable, laid in a manger, we can't help but smile. I mean, really, what a strange way to save the world. And so let's unwrap this gift of joy. Whenever we come to these themes or these topics, I like to ask the question, what is joy? And, and I think it's helpful to define it. To, um, sometimes it's helpful to know what it is not rather than, than what it is. And, uh, and so the first thing I want to just say is just to make sure that we know that joy is not happiness, that we never confuse the two. Because when we think of joy, we often think of happiness and when we're happy, we feel joy. But what do we do when we feel sad or disappointed or we're weighed down with our burdens? Can we still be joyful? If you say to someone who's kind of feeling down and discouraged, just cheer up. It can feel so insensitive and superficial. <laughs> Don't worry, be happy, right? That can feel really shallow. 
You see, joy is not the same as happiness, because happiness depends on our circumstances or our happenings. It's an emotion we feel, and when we experience good and positive things, we feel happy. But when we then go through hard things or experience grief and loss, we feel sadness. It's what we are all feeling right now. This is a sad time, and it's okay to acknowledge that. But joy is not situational. It's not rooted in our circumstances. It's rooted ultimately in our relationship with Jesus. And because of that, we can have joy and be sad at the same time. I'll never forget my brother-in-law, Tina's brother, 2003, 17 years ago, he passed away in fact, it'll be 18 years in January. He, he passed away from, from cancer. And uh, <clears throat> it was over the, the holidays. Uh, we spent Christmas in a hospital um, room uh, visiting him then into the early uh, days of January. And I think it was January uh, 6th or 7th that he passed away. But I'll never forget at the funeral, uh, standing in the front row, I officiated part of the funeral And I remember looking towards my mother-in-law, Jimmy's mom, and we were singing that great hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And she stood there in the front row with her arms raised and tears streaming down her face with a smile on her face. How could she do that? Because she knew that Jimmy had a relationship with Jesus, that, that, that in the midst of the sorrow and the grief and the tear, she could still be joyful. Joy is never dependent on our circumstances and should never be confused with happiness. Secondly, joy is an attitude. Someone once wrote, joy is a state of mind, not a state of affairs. As followers of Jesus, we have good reason for joy. We, we adopt an attitude of joy, not because of our happy circumstances, but ultimately because of our hope in God's love and His promises. The shepherds were joyful that night because their hope for a Savior had been fulfilled. This promise that had been made was fulfilled. Oswald Chambers, the early 20th century Scottish evangelist and teacher, wrote, Joy is the great note all through the Bible. We have the notion of joy that arises from good spirits or good health, but the miracle of the joy of God has nothing to do with a man's life or his circumstances or the condition he is in. Jesus Christ does not come to a man and say, cheer up. He plants within a man the miracle of the joy of God's own nature. And so our joy is rooted in who God is, that He is good, that He is faithful, that He is kind, and that He has purposes. And even now, we know that He is at work to bring about His desired purposes. And in the Bible, joy is rooted in God's actions towards His people. The Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, living under the oppressive rule of Pharaoh, and God uses Moses to lead his people out of captivity, and he rescues them from slavery. And guess what? The people rejoice, even though they were in the desert. Rejoicing 
in the wilderness. Psalm 105 verse 43, after uh, this great psalm that tells all about this journey, he says in verse 43, he brought out his people with rejoicing, his chosen one with shouts of joy. And for thousands of years, the Jewish people have remembered this event. They've told it over and over to their children and their children's children. They celebrated the Passover and their liberation from slavery. They've kept this memory alive with an annual celebration and feast. And they still do. And even later, when they experienced another devastating invasion and they were taken into exile, the people would still rejoice. Why? Because their joy was not in their present circumstances. It was rooted in the past and how God had cared for them and intervened and rescued them. And then it was connected to their future hope that God would once again send a deliverer who would rescue him, them, the Messiah. And friends, it's no different for us. We were slaves to sin. And God sent His Son to rescue us, to liberate us, to set us free, to save us. And as a result, we would have forgiveness of sin, the promise of abundant life now, and the hope of eternity. And that is the only reason I need. Because you can't take that away from me. The faith and the trust that we put in Jesus, the faith and the trust in His love, there's nothing that can separate us from from His love. Nothing. Loss of employment, a pandemic, nothing. David, in Psalm 51, he prays this great prayer, and he prays, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And, and if you know the story of David, you know that was in response to uh, the sin of adultery, the sin of murder, and, 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 and his whole relationship with God was disrupted because of that. You, you can read about that in Psalm 32, but sin didn't break the relationship, but it disrupted it. And David prays, return to me the joy of my salvation. Friends, when we think about what we have been saved from, that brings joy to our hearts that nothing can take away. So joy is not happiness. Secondly, joy is an attitude. It's this settledness of God's love deep in our hearts and in our minds. Thirdly, joy is knowing and experiencing God's love. Knowing and experiencing God's love. You see, joy is ultimately a response to God's love and mercy. So in Romans 5 verse 8, we read there that God proves, but God proves his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then two verses later, Paul um, rightly identifies sinners as enemies, but he says there that they were reconciled to God through the death of his son, and who would then be saved by his life. Ultimately, we know that Jesus, at the very beginning, was given the name Jesus because it means he saves. He would save his people from their sins. 
And Jesus didn't die because I was his friend. He died to make me his friend. And that is true for all of us. And when we think of that relationship with God being made right through Jesus Christ, that love that he had for us, that he was willing to go and die on the cross for us, that truth needs to find itself deep in our heart. And then it fills us with this joy. Who can't remember as a kid singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Friends, in our weakness, we know that we have a relationship with a loving Heavenly Father. And so fourthly, joy is loving and worshiping God. This is a constant theme throughout the Bible. From the Old Testament to the New, we see this. uh, Psalm 37, verse 4, delight in the Lord. Isaiah 61, 10, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. And in a passage we're going to come to and look at a little bit, a little bit more, Philippians 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Or Psalm 47, verse 1 and 2, clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with a jubilant cry, for the Lord the Most High is awe-inspiring, <clears throat> a great king over the whole earth. For the Lord the Most High is awe-inspiring. And so we clap our hands and we shout to God with a jubilant cry or with cries of joy. And there is just no doubt in my mind that when we know and experience, that we know and experience a deep joy whenever we express our love and our adoration to God, when we honor Him with our lives, when we bow in humble submission, when we surrender all that we have in obedience to Him, that is when joy fills our hearts. You can think about almost any worship course that gives you that opportunity, or a hymn comes to mind. For me, I I find myself often in moments of quiet and reflection and worship, my mind automatically seems to go to, how great thou art. O Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. When we see his unique creation, we worship him. He goes on in verse 2 and he talks about really the things that we enjoy in nature cause us to direct our attention to God, the joy that we experience when we hear the birds singing in the trees, or when we walk through the woods and the forest glades, when we look down from lofty mountain grandeur and we see the brook and feel the gentle breeze. And when I think that God, he goes in verse 3, his son not sparing, takes us right back again to what Jesus has done for us how he brought salvation to this world by being born as a baby to live among us and then to die for our sins. I scarce can take it in that on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. And that hymn also then looks forward to our future hope because verse 4 goes, when Christ shall come, He's going to come again. 
with a shout of acclamation and take me home, whether at his return or by death. What joy shall fill my heart? Because then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim how how great thou art. Friends, that's joy. You can't take that away with our circumstances. And so how do we cultivate and protect joy? Because there are enemies, there are things that want to steal our joy. And I want to say that just as the Israelites have cultivated the joy of their rescue and deliverance for thousands of years, we too need to take great care to cultivate and protect our joy. Uh, Nehemiah 8 verse 10 says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And we have an enemy that wants us to be weak. He wants us to fall flat on our face. He wants to steal our joy because he knows that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And a few weeks ago, I was prompted by the Holy Spirit to the Apostle Paul's words to the Philippians in chapter 4, the words that Adam and Jolene read for us this morning. And I want to just look quickly at how we can cultivate and protect joy through the lens of these verses. First of all, know where to direct your joy. We can't direct our joy to people or things. Paul is so clear as to where we need to direct our joy to. He says, rejoice in the Lord. I will say it again, rejoice. We are to rejoice in the Lord. That's the key. We don't rejoice in the feelings that are dependent on our circumstances. Why? Because our circumstances are constantly changing and may even be unpleasant at any given time. Like right now. Instead, Paul invites us to direct our joy to Jesus, to rejoice in his love, which is never changing. And so again, we see that our joy is rooted in our relationship with the Father through the Son. We are his children. He loves us. He cares for us. And we place our faith and our trust in who he is. Robert Robinson, the author of the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, at one time in his life, he experienced the loss of joyful intimacy with Jesus that he once enjoyed that caused him to write these hymns, in particular this one. And then later in his declining years, he had wandered off and he was living a pretty sinful life. And as a result, he became deeply troubled in his spirit, which, by the way, is the effect of sin. And I direct you to Psalm 32 again, that, that, that sin will pull us, in a sense, out of the presence of God where there's joy, not out of relationship, but our relationship is impacted. Anyways, uh, Robert, hoping to relieve his mind, he just decided to travel, right? Because that's what we're going to do. We're going to find a way to distract ourselves in some way. And in the course of his journeys, he connects with a young woman, and they begin to talk about spiritual matters. And one day, she asked him what he thought about a hymn that she had just been reading. And you can imagine where this is going, right? Because to his astonishment, it was none other than his own hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And he, he tried to evade her question, but she continued to press him for a response. And suddenly he began to weep. And with tears streaming down his cheeks, he said, I am the man who wrote that hymn many years ago. I'd give anything to experience the joy I knew then. 
Although greatly surprised, she reassured him that the streams of mercy mentioned in the song, they still flow today. And Mr. Robinson was deeply touched, and he turned, in essence, his wandering heart to the Lord. He was restored to the joy of his salvation in the way that David was. Number one, know where to direct your joy. Number two, extend grace and joy to others. Let your graciousness or your gentleness be known to everyone, Paul writes. Verse 5, we probably all know joyless people. And we need to be gracious and sensitive to others, but be very careful not to let people, uh, negative people, rob you of your joy. Um, I think of boundaries that come to mind and how important that is. I, I, I think of um, how careful we need to be around social media. Friends, grace. Extend grace. Hold some of the things loosely. We, we know that when we're sad and we're emotional, we can have the tendency to be much more harsh. But when we cultivate joy, we will do so when we extend grace and joy to others and know that there are certain things that we can just let go. We don't need to comment on everything. Thirdly, experience the joy of intimacy. Experience the joy of intimacy. There Paul writes just this little four, these four words, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. Friends, this is the Christmas story. Emmanuel, God with us, lived among us and now lives within us and the joy and the mystery of the incarnation. Again, just that deep joy of relationship. And so no matter how we may be feeling right now, that in the midst of that sorrow, that disappointment, or that loss, we know that He is with us. Not casually as a bystander, but actively. He is at work. And I think Paul was not just talking about that the Lord is with you now, but the Lord is near. His coming is near. He's coming again. And it's near. It's soon. Fourth, don't let worry and anxiety steal your joy. Don't let worry and anxiety steal your joy. Verse 6, don't worry about anything but in everything through prayer and petition. Proverbs 12, 25, you can read so many verses around um, anxiety and worry and, and how they can weigh a person down. But Proverbs 12, verse 25, anxiety in a person's heart weighs it down, but a good word cheers it up. Or Psalm 55, verse 2, cast your burden or cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. And so we take these anxious thoughts that weigh us down and we cast them on him and trust that he will strengthen us and sustain us even in those dark moments. Five, gratitude and contentment are keys to joy. Uh, Paul simply says that all of our prayers, petitions, and requests should come from the perspective of a thankful heart because he simply says that with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And I appreciate it, Pastor Adam, just taking us through the prayer exercise this morning to be reminded of the things that we're thankful for. Because listen, nothing will suck the joy out of life faster than when we focus on what we don't have rather than what we do have. And when we focus on what we don't have, we're essentially saying to God, why, why didn't you give me this or that? Or why didn't you do this? We're basically questioning God's goodness and his faithfulness and, and his love. And so 
it might take a change of our focus or our perspective to know that gratitude and contentment are keys to joy. I'll admit to you, I, I like satire, maybe because I, I do like sar- sarcasm. I like a good wit. Um, and, and satire, as you may know, it just uses irony and sarcasm and ridicule to expose or denounce human vices or follies. And, uh, and I do follow the Babylon Bee. Maybe some of you are familiar with that. If you're easily offended, I encourage you not to, to read this. But I came across one post that I thought was so fitting, and uh, it, it made me wince a little bit, and maybe it'll make you wince a little bit as well. I want to share it with you. But this was an article called, 2020 Rated Worst Year Ever. And we all say, Amen. Um, I probably didn't want to do that too quickly. It's a good thing we don't know who said amen. But provided you have never lived at any other time in history, goes the title. Provided you have never lived at any other time in history. Let me read the short article to you. Across the country, there is general consensus that 2020 has been the worst year ever. According to studies, 82% of Americans agree that 2020 has been a terrible year of unprecedented suffering and misery. Experts confirm that 2020 was indeed the worst year, provided you have never lived in virtually any other time period in all of human history. We notice that most of the respondents who called 2020 the worst year also enjoyed delicious food being delivered to them for eight months, nine months, while they sat on their couches with the air conditioning on or the furnace on and binge-watched shows the whole time, said one researcher. While we understand it hasn't been easy, we also found very few instances of Viking raids, Black Plague, famine, world war, using rotary telephones. Guys, I'm old enough to remember that. It hurt your finger. It was awful. Needed to look things up in a physical dictionary. Slavery, people being burned at the stake, walking miles to school, living in caves, sleeping on the ground, ice ages, Nazi holocaust, civil war, infant mortality, global foods, ethnic cleansing, using leaves as toilet paper, that was awful, using leeches as medicine, using wooden mallets as an anesthetic, fighting wild saber-toothed tigers, cannibalism, occupation by the Persian Empire. What was I talking about again? Oh yeah, most people in 2020 never experienced any of those things. So comparatively speaking, it's been a pretty decent year. Worst year ever, tweeted one local man who has been making more money than most Zambians make in a lifetime, all from the comfort of their computer. Can 2020 be over yet, tweeted a New York fashion executive whose preferred candidate just won the presidential election. I just can't anymore. Ugh! Explained another after Uber got his dinner order wrong. The only exception was one oddball who walked out of his front door and took a deep breath of the morning air. Thank you, God, for this amazing air, he said. The oddball has been detained for further scientific study to figure out what the heck is wrong with him. Friends, I I just share that. Sometimes we do have to laugh and we have to laugh at ourselves and maybe have a bit of change in focus perspective? Can we joyfully receive what God has for us in this season? I get it. There is a lot of loss and sadness. I feel it. We are relational people, and we can't be together right now, not here and not even there in your homes on Christmas of all times. But can we wake up on Christmas morning and say, thank you, God, for Jesus? Thank you, God, 
for salvation. Thank you, God, for hope. Thank you, God, for the family. Thank you, God, for my friends. And just go on. There's so much for us to be thankful for. And when we focus on that, when we, we will see then that having that attitude towards um, uh, what we're grateful for and contented with can change our perspective. I want to give you a challenge for Christmas Day. Think of maybe three to five people that you will intentionally call. Pick up the phone and call the people in your life that, and, and just express your thanks to them for the impact that they've had on your life. Just three to five. Think about who those might be now. Six, lastly, choose joy. Choosing joy means we carefully choose what we think about. Choosing joy means we carefully choose what we think. So verse 8 is key to this. Philippians 4. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there is any moral excellence, and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. So the obvious question is, is what are we dwelling on? What consumes our thinking? Oh man, it's so easy to be consumed with all of the negativity, all of the debates, the news. We can just so easily go to dark places. And if that is true for you, maybe you need to, A, watch what you're exposing yourself to, but maybe it will be helpful to take Philippians 4.8, find a translation that you like, copy and paste it and, and blow it up or do something nice to the font or whatever, put it on a page and print it off and put it where you will always be reminded of this. Friends, I heard very early on in the pandemic this line, we have the power to choose what to ponder. There's in reference to this verse, what to dwell on, what to think about. And so let's choose wisely. Friends, I have to tell you that this two messages, one on peace that I did two weeks ago and joy, they, they hit it close to home. And uh, I know that in my own life, I'm, I'm prone to discouragement. I can, I can get down pretty, pretty easily. And a number of years ago, I actually went to, to see a counselor, a Christian psychologist, that, that would just help me unpack some of this a little bit. And I was just concerned about, you know, was there some depression in my life? And, and I just remember going through a whole bunch of different assessments and a lot of conversation. And I remember this one line that he said to me that has stuck with me ever since. And he just said, he says, no, Norb, you're, you're not depressed. You have a tendency to be depressive. You can get discouraged easily. And so he said, watch your joy. And that comes back to me regularly when I just say, man, Lord, help me to watch my joy. And so I need to go through this exercise as well. And so as I close, let me just say this again, that choosing joy does not mean denying any pain or sorrow or loss. It's not denying our emotions. That's just not healthy at all. Joy actually can embrace the pain and the loss, and we trust that God's purposes will ultimately be fulfilled. That's what the longest night of the year is about. And so I'm going to invite you again, December 21, to put that on your calendar. And it's because we have confidence that God is at work and will bring about his purposes, we can still rejoice even when we don't see him working. But to know that he is at work. 
And this week in our daily reading plan, if you're following along from that, we read from the prophet Habakkuk. And, um, and these minor prophets, they're easy to skip over. We don't know always what they're about when you're first reading it. But take some time and study it. And, and, and at the end of chapter 3, it's actually at the end of that, Habakkuk prays a prayer to God. And he ends it like this. And this is how I want us to, to close the service this morning. Though the fig tree does not bud and there is no fruit on the vines. Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food. Though the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stalls. Yet I will celebrate in my heart. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Do you catch that? Habakkuk will not be distracted from his trust and his joy in God, even if the economy is bad, even if crops fail, even if assets are lost. Yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. My encouragement to you your homework for today would maybe be to write out your own prayer that begins with though and express what it is you're frustrated about. Though and express what the loss is. But finish it with these words. Yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Let's pray together. Father, Oh, I thank you that our joy is not dependent on our circumstances. Because if it were, we would have no reason to be joyful. But we have great reason to be joyful. Because of who you are. Because of what we know you've done in the past. Because we know that you sent your son, Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to hold on to. He willingly gave up his rights, his benefits, because he loved us. God, help us when we think of that to fill our hearts with joy and then be people who just dispense this joy to all the people that we encounter with in these next few days. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.